You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Back in 2019, uh, there was a report that was released by an organization called IPBIS. Now, IPBIS is the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, which is exactly why they have the acronym IPBIS, because that's way too big of a name to keep repeating. And they had this report. It was 1,500 pages long. It was supported and sponsored by the United Nations. And it is the most sweeping and exhaustive examination of Earth's ecosystems that humans have ever conducted. It had thousands of studies uh, done by hundreds of scientists representing more than 130 countries across the globe. And in this 1,500-page report, these are just a few of their findings. First, since the year 1870, 50% of the world's coral reefs have been lost. Half. In multiple major land habitats, including the African savanna and the South American Amazon, native plant and animal life has decreased by 20% in the last 100 years alone. Marine plastic pollution, that is plastic in our oceans, has increased tenfold since 1980. And that's resulted in the stark decline of 86% of marine turtles. That's why you hear people in our culture caring deeply about the turtles, because they're going away. 44% of marine seabirds have declined, and 43% of marine mammal life have declined. And all of those species lead up in a food chain all the way to our dinner tables. They affect us in the long term. They also included a variety of graphics, and I wanted to share one of these graphics with you because it was quite striking. This is tracking extinctions across the world since the year 1500 in a variety of different animals. So you've got amphibians, mammals, birds, reptiles, fishes, and you can see across the board all of these spike by more than 300% right around the year 1990 or a little bit earlier. Friends, this report that it best released is quite clear. The last couple centuries of history has seen exponential increases in ecological destruction. And guess what they identify as a primary contributing factor? Not the only contributing factor, but a primary one. People. Us. Human action. Over the last two centuries, humans have extracted exponentially more from the earth and added more waste, exponentially more waste, into the earth than we have at any other point in human history. Industrialism and uh, consumerism has caused us to soil our own nest. And much of that is due to what we can call pollution culture. It's a, a cultural ethos that's kind of taken over our world in the last couple hundred years. Pollution culture is this. It's the overexpending of Earth's resources and introduction of dangerous amounts of destructive substances into our Earth for the purpose of maximizing human economic and industrial priorities or growth. That's a long definition, but in short, it's a way of saying that the earth is a means to our end, something to be used for our purposes, and something that we can dispose of however we see fit, whenever we see fit, because it's here for us. The only thing that the earth is, is a means to our end. It's inherently disposable. And pollution culture leads us to relentlessly produce goods in our world, independent of whether those goods are needed or whether the production of those goods is sustainable. Pollution culture leads Americans, right now, according to a recent study done at the U of A, to throw away 50% of the edible food that we produce every year. 
half in our country alone. Pollution culture leads us to create a literal garbage island that's floating in the Pacific Ocean right now that's 600,000 square miles. That's twice the size of the state of Texas. Pollution culture is consumed with wealth and comfort and status, far more than it's consumed with life or health or care for our world. And that's the culture we live in today. That's the culture that we've embodied as a collective humanity over the last couple centuries. We're continuing in a sermon series here at Midtown entitled Non-Disposable. We're looking at the different ways that our culture assumes that things and people are inherently disposable, means to our ends and things that we can get rid of when we're done with them. And we're looking at how Jesus charts a different way for us, a way of non-disposability, a way of saying that things and people are actually beloved by God, and that in caring for those things and protecting those things, we're actually brought into deeper life and deeper wholeness. And today, we're going to look at pollution culture and what the scriptures have to say to us as humans about caring for the world around us. And as it turns out, that's something that's been central to the Christian story since the very beginning. And that's why we're going to start at the very beginning. If you have a Bible, turn in it with me to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, it's not going to be hard to find. It's the first chapter in your Bible. Uh, so you can flip there. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, let me know after service. We want to make sure that you can read with us on Sunday mornings and on your own. We'll get you one for free. It's on us. Uh, we also have the words behind me on the screen if you'd like to follow along. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 20 and reading through chapter 2, verse 4. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters, and every living creature that moves of every kind, with, every, with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our own image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Back in 1980, there was an impending crisis looming in the midst of the Cascade Mountains of Washington. Mount Saint, yeah, Washington shout out. There's some Washington people in here. Mount St. Helens, an active volcano, was showing signs that it was near erupting. And so authorities evacuated the surrounding area. News stations got their helicopters and cameras ready. And sure enough, on May 18th at 8.32 a.m., it happened. But it didn't happen in the way that people expected it to happen. See, most times when volcanoes erupt, they erupt straight up into the air, which actually allows a more even distribution of all of the ash and the rock that it spews out. It often is less destructive when it goes straight up. But that's not how Mount St. Helens erupted. Mount St. Helens erupted sideways. A mile-wide chunk of the north face of the mountain was blown off, hurtling towards civilization. It had an energy equivalent to 1,500 atom bombs. It spewed rock and superheated gas outwards at speeds of 400 miles per hour, and the destruction well, it was manifold. The ash forced emergency shutdowns for towns 300 miles away. 57 people were killed, even though the surrounding area was evacuated. In the following two weeks, ash from the mountain had made its way into skies all across the globe. Wherever you were on the planet, you could see ash from the eruption. And the land right around the mountain was decimated. Everything was burned and crushed and covered with ash. And scientists went to investigate Mount St. Helens afterward, and they came to the conclusion that it would take hundreds of years for this mountain to make a comeback, for life to come back to this area. Hundreds of years. But right now, just 40 years after the eruption, you can go to Mount St. Helens, and you'll see it covered lush with grass, with trees, with plant life. Streams are flowing there again, and animals are starting to build their homes around Mount St. Helens. And that's been confounding to scientists. Like, how did this happen, right? We expected this destruction to just ruin things for hundreds of years. How did this happen? So they've gone and studied Mount St. Helens. And as it turns out, the devastation of that eruption in 1980 had passed over a few small pockets that had been protected by rocks or trees or other things. And so there was some moss and some plants, some small little mice and rodents, some insects that were able to live even as the destruction passed over them. The covers of boulders and trees helped them. And so now scientists have developed a word to describe these little pockets, these little ecosystems of safety in the midst of destruction. They're called refugia. Refugia, which has the root refuge. They're small ecosystem shelters from which new life can emerge in the midst of destruction. And I know that in our world, when we hear reports like the Ipbes report, and when we hear reports of all of the ecological destruction of our planet, it can often leave us without hope. It can often leave us thinking, what do we do in these situations? But nature itself implies a different conclusion than hopelessness. That even in the midst of a decimated landscape, a refugia, a refuge of life can endure. And not only can it endure, but it can spread life quickly in the middle of a destructive world. And is that not the picture very much of the gospel and of the church? That God loves us deeply. And that God, in the midst of a destructive world, has stepped in and created a community of life that can bring life to the world. And that sort of new life, by the way, in the gospel story, it's not just possible that it comes. It's going to come because God's going to bring it. And God's committed to bringing it. That's the story that we circle around every week together. There's a, a theologian named uh, Dr. Deborah Reinstra who outlines this idea of refugia more fully in her book called Refugia Faith, 
Now, this is very much something that she spent a lot of time researching. She wants to help the church identify itself as a community of refuge, of refugia in a world that's falling apart. And this is what she says in her book. How can people of faith become people of refugia? How can we find and create refugia, not only in the earth, but simultaneously in our human cultural systems and in our spirits? And this text, Genesis 1 and 2, it's teaching us fundamental truths about creation and about God and ourselves. And it's from those truths that we now can figure out what it means for us to be a community of refugia, a community of refuge in a world that's ecologically falling apart, but also culturally and uh, humanitarily. And so we remember how to become a community of refugia by doing these three things. We remember the dignity of creation. We practice care of creation. And we live out our human capacity in creation. Genesis 1 and 2 is teaching us all those things. Remember the dignity of creation, practice care of creation, and live out our human capacity in creation. So first, let's look at remembering the dignity of creation. There's a repeated refrain in Genesis 1 and 2 that's used to describe the created order. You may have caught it. It's actually said in verses 21, 25, and 31 in what we read together. There's a word that's used to describe the created order. Did you guys catch it? Good. Good, good, good. It's said over and over here. And then at the end, God says it's very good. The scriptures want to be really clear to us that God has woven intentional and inherent goodness into the created order. The world, by its very existence, is a product of the love and grace of God. And that gives it inherent dignity. And deep down, we know that dignity as humans. Why do you think our stomachs get tied up in knots when we see animals being abused? Why do you think it's disheartening for us to see destruction and turmoil all around us in the natural order? It's because we know that creation is good. We know it's been instilled by God with his life and love, that his fingerprints are all over. And so when that gets destroyed, well, it disheartens us. But it's not just the goodness of creation that communicates its dignity here. Its dignity actually comes in its order as well, in the clearly defined order and function of the creation. That's a big part of what Genesis 1 and 2 are doing in this passage. This is trying to tell us that all of creation is this interconnected canvas that's woven together, and everything is dependent on everything else. It's designed to work cohesively and in harmony. Notice, for instance, when uh, it describes God's creation of the animals here. Did you catch the animals that it listed? Cattle, creeping things, and wild animals, which is kind of a weird list. Like, first, why are cows getting the shout-out? Like, cows are great. I love cows. I love a lot of things cows. But cows, that's the main thing. And then creeping things and wild animals, those are pretty ambiguous. Like, what, what's really happening here? That's the only things that are explicitly mentioned. What is the author doing here? Well, according to the work that scholar John Walton has done, a scholar on Genesis, he's actually saying that these expressions are ways of uh, stating categories of the created order. And that these words are used to describe bigger, uh, cohesive categories of creation. So for instance, the word cattle is used all throughout the Old Testament to describe domesticated animals that help humans. That word is used at different times to describe that category of animals. So it's a way that we work with animals to bring about life. And creeping things, that's used to describe smaller, untamed, wild animals that are lower down in the food chain. And then wild animals, well, that's animals that are higher up in the food chain that need the creeping things in order to live that need to consume those creeping things. And so these categories are actually a way of saying, hey, all of this is reliant upon everything else. The whole thing is working together. 
Genesis is telling us, friends, that this is divinely ordered, every part of our world. Which means this isn't supposed to be a scientific index. Right? In our modern world, we often think, well, if I'm writing about creation, then I'm going to list all the species and all the subspecies and the way they're interconnected. But that's not how they thought in this day, and that's not the message of this text. The message of this text is to say, hey, all of this is this divine orchestra, this amazing music that God has written and proclaimed into the world. And that continues throughout the rest of Genesis 1. It's not just in the little passage here. I've actually got a, a graphic I want to share with you guys uh, that helps express this. So at the beginning of, of creation, in early Genesis 1, we learn that the, the earth is formless and void. Creation is formless and void. So when it's saying that, it's saying that, that formless is, is uh, unstructured, disordered. There's no defined order to it. And void means it's empty. There's nothing in it. And then the rest of the creation narrative is showing us how God has brought order in both of those regards. So the first three days, we learn that God brings light and darkness to a formless world, to an unstructured world. And then day two, he brings the waters above and waters below. He separates these waters. In the ancient world, water comes from above and waters below, right? It's a way of expressing what's true about what God has ordered. And then finally, God brings land into the middle of this formless creation. This is functionally the setting of creation. And then look at the parallels on the next days of creation. In the formless creation, he created a structure, and then he fills that structure with the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then the waters above and waters below, he takes that structure and fills it with sea and air creatures. And then on day three, he fills the land with land creatures, cattle and creeping things and humans. And then at the end, there's this divine rest that God partakes in. He says, all of this is very good. The whole point of Genesis 1 is to say that all of this is intentionally ordered. And that's a radical thing in the author's day. There's no other ancient Near Eastern narrative that we have that talks about creation being this ordered and divinely inspired. Oftentimes, creations happened in other narratives because the gods had done something accidental. And it rarely was put together in, in such a defined and clear way. But that's also really counter to our culture today. Because most people in our culture say that well, we kind of just ended up here. We kind of just randomly happened, right? It's a, really a result of chance that we're around. We as Christians wouldn't say that, friends. Creation isn't random. It's not the result of chaotic chance. It's been ordered with a distinct purpose to be a place of flourishing, a place of life, where all things are interconnected and reliant upon one another. And science, by the way, is always teaching us that interconnectedness. There was a a researcher named Edward Lorenz, who lived back in 1961. He was working on a computer model to predict weather patterns in the world. And so he'd type in some numbers on the computer, and it would produce a weather pattern. And then he'd write that down and go on to the next one. And every number that he entered to start went out to the millionths place in decimals. So 0 0.506123, And you can imagine that getting pretty tedious for him, barely moving the needle on these numbers and it barely affecting the weather pattern. So he's like, you know what? I think I'm going to cut down on these numbers. I'm not going to go out to the millionths. I'm just going to go out to the thousandths. Because what could a, a decimal of one in a thousand really matter in these weather predictions? And so he did. He just typed out for the next one, 0.507, and moved on. He went and got his coffee and came back. And the weather pattern that was produced was radically different than the previous one. That is, a change in one in a thousand in these numbers made the weather pattern entirely different than anything else. The smallest change affected the whole. And that led Lorenz to produce a research paper. 
that now has produced our idea of the butterfly effect. Some of you have heard of this effect. He had a question in that research paper. He said, can a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? He seemed to claim that all of this is interconnected and all of this is reliant upon everything else. And even the smallest of changes affects the whole. Science is proving what Genesis 1 and 2 have been saying all along, that this whole thing is divinely ordered. Our universe is interconnected. And so we learn, friends, that this creation that God has given us, it has inherent dignity, not only because he's given it goodness, but because he has divinely ordered it for us. And pollution culture undermines those things. It treats creation as not a good end in itself, but as a means to our end, as a disposable means to our end. Pollution is this middle finger to God's good and ordered creation. But that's not the end of the story. Right? We learn that humans actually have a role to play in caring for this creation. And that's the second part of how we become a community of refugia. We practice care within creation. Humans are brought into this good and ordered world, and there's two different things that we learn about humanity in this passage. We learn first that they're a part of creation and intimately connected to it. In Genesis 2, it goes into more detail about how humans were made. They were formed from the dust of the earth. That we are intrinsically connected to the planet around us in some way or another. And then, also notice, humans come last in the creation narrative, which means they're dependent on everything else that's come before them. The first five days of creation are the, the setting upon which humans can now come into the world, and we are dependent on those first few days, which means humans don't live on Earth. We live with Earth. Our life and flourishing are utterly dependent on everything else that's come before us in the creation order. So humans are connected to creation, but we also learn that humans are unique amidst the creation because they've been made in the image of God. And that image of God language is something that many of us who have been raised in the church have probably used at one point or another. But what is the author getting at here? Well, John Walton explores that as well. He talks about how image was communicated in the ancient world. Images carried the essence of the things which they represented. So, for instance, when you carried an image of an ancient God into a place of worship, people believed that it could carry out the purposes of that God in one way or another. It wasn't the God, but it could carry out those purposes. We also learned that images have the capacity to become like the original as well. Later on in Genesis, we learned that the, the descendants of Adam are the images of Adam. They're saying that these new descendants, these children, have the capacity to live into the characteristics and the attributes of Adam. And so the Bible is saying a profound thing about human nature. One, that we are created by God to bring about his purposes, his good purposes in the world, and that we can grow into his characteristics, his love and his grace and his tenderness for creation. Which means we are sub-creators. We get to cultivate goodness alongside God in the created world. And the text goes on to detail what this image-bearing looks like. It says that humans are to subdue and to have dominion. Those are the two things that the text mentions here. Yours might say rule as well. And those words can sound a little authoritarian to us today. Subdue and have dominion, right? It's a very aggressive sounding language in English. But the words here are not really communicating uh, this aggressive abuse of creation and usury as we see fit. They're actually encouraging us to cultivate and use the resources that are here in such a way that represents the love and the character of God. 
So we do use the earth. That's an important role that we have as humans. We're not meant to just uh, avoid or, or not disturb the planet. We're called to have kids. We're called to build things. We're called to have good food and good wine. Amen. Right? Those are, are good things. But we're called also not to abuse those things. Because we are image bearers of God, we care for them in the same way God does. How did God care for creation when he made creation? He was very intentional. He did it with love. He did it with compassion. He poured himself out. That's the character of God. And so we use the earth, certainly. But we do it in such a way that represents the love and the character of God. That's what it means to be image bearers. And so those verbs don't give us license to abuse or destroy. But they also don't put humanity on par with creation. They don't say we're the same thing. They're indicating that we are rulers with God over earth, and yet we're responsible for caring for that creation with God as well. Which means the Genesis narrative should never lead us to human-centric views of our world. That's not what this is saying here. This is a God-centric creation. That's why it ends with God resting, right? It doesn't end with humans. It ends with God resting amidst everything he's made. The whole point is that God has formed the world and that we play a unique role in it. This is a God-centric universe, not a human-centric universe. And only when we make it a human-centric universe, when we uh, give up our image of God representation and make it a human-centric universe, do we start to see abuse happen. Pollution culture persists when we make our world human-centric, when we use the world and its resources for our ends at its own expense. And that sort of dynamic is a rejection of the image of God, which we as Christians would say is kind of a fundamental basis of what it means to sin. We would say that the rejection of the image of God and the making of the world in our own image, a human-centric world, well, that's, that's sin. And all of us, in a multitude of ways, have chosen to tarnish that image, right? Whether that's been in creation or whether that's been in our individual spiritual emotional lives. There's a theologian named Augustine who used a Latin phrase to describe this nature of human. He called us incurvatus in se, which means curved inward on ourselves. We've made this world a human-centric world, and the result is pain and abuse and brokenness. That's what happens when we give up the image of God. Humanity has become a cracked mirror, and our divine reflections, our images, have been fractured. And while we still get glimpses of the image of God in humanity from time to time, we're unable to resolve the brokenness of our mirrors on our own. Mirrors can't fix themselves. But that's not the end of the story, again. See, God did not stand by and allow all of this to get disposed of. God said that none of this is disposable. And so God reworked a different story here. He brought in a new, restored picture of the world. See, all of us have rejected the image of God, but there's one person who didn't. Jesus. Jesus came as the ultimate expression of the image of God. He came because we had failed to live out the image of God in our lives. And then he took on all the pain and all the brokenness and all the failure that we have wrought into the world in himself on the cross. And it was on that day, like the day when Mount St. Helens erupted, that the sky went dark, that life ended, that the sun was blotted out. And it's also on that day, in the midst of that death and destruction, that a refugia was being formed. A refugia of resurrection. A refugia of restoration. And that refugia came forth a few days later. As Paul puts it in Colossians, Christ's death is about restoring all things. 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. All things means all things, friends. That means that the creation is being made new in Christ, and that we, as people who are now living into our image of God, start to participate in that restoration of creation. And so that leads us to the third way we become a community of refugia. We receive and follow Christ. And we become restored people who now live out that restoration around us. And part of that restoration is our care for creation. And the church is the community that starts to do that. Because we are the body of Christ's restoring work. We're the ones who have received this work in our lives and who now go out into the world and embody that restorative work. We become committed to non-disposability in our care for creation. And we lament when creation is treated as disposable. And that's why we've actually created a resource list for us at Midtown here together. How we can take next steps together in caring for the world around us. We know that there's a lot of destruction and it will, will take some time for us to participate. But part of the reason that IPBES released that report recently and part of the reason that Deborah Reinstra wrote this book is because there's actually evidence that we can start to turn things around. That we can start to find healing in our world. And so this resource list, we're going to email it out to you. If I don't have your email, get it to me and I'll make sure you can get it. It's going to have a list of organizations that you can look into and help support that are caring for our creation. It's going to have a list of books that you can read and articles you can read about how to care well for creation. And then it's going to have a practical list of things you can do right now in your life. Whether that's not using disposable garbage bags or whether that's limiting the uh, amount of wattage that your lamps use. There's little things you can do that really matter. And all of that is part of us being this refugia, this amazing community of restoration in a world of destruction. Friends, Christ has called us to be a refuge, a refuge in all of the brokenness in our world. And brokenness expands well beyond just the spiritual, well beyond just the emotional. It expands into the physical as well. And if we're that sort of community, and if the church around the world becomes that sort of community, all of a sudden, we can find in the midst of destruction, in the midst of an eruption of destruction, these little ecosystems of life. Ecosystems that can extend to the world that's in need of that life. So let's, friends, here at Midtown, starting today, resist our pollution culture in little ways in our lives. Let's resist the disposability of the world and practice non-disposability together instead. Let's pray, friends.